fast asleep. Hey, we so loved your feedback about last week's episode. Thanks. Today, we finish Alice Munro's story and learn all about that girl at the party. Ms. Monroe, known as the master of the contemporary short story, has made this one long enough to force us to divide it into two episodes. Be sure you see the first one. Or maybe I should say listen to the first one. Well, last week we said Alice knew her subject well for this tale. Married, divorced, married again. Mm -hmm. She drew from other aspects of her life, too, we found out. Alice Monroe left college to marry a fellow student. Uh-huh. She once lived in a farmhouse. Okay. And she knows about bookstores. You see, there's a bookstore in today's episode. So she herself, decades ago, Alice did this, opened a bookstore that is still in operation today. And in this conclusion, you just might catch her tongue-in-cheek comments about, you know, those dreaded authors that write short stories. <laughs> All right. Like another featured author of Fast Asleep, Anton Chekhov, Ms. Monroe is known to be obsessed with time and the inability to delay it. Okay, let's not delay this anymore. Tuck in, everybody, for the conclusion of Alice Monroe's fiction. that girl in the black dress, says Joyce, the one who walked out on the game. Christy? You, oh, you must mean Christy, Christy O'Dell. Oh, she's Justin's wife, but she has her own name. You know Justin. Well, of course I know Justin. I just didn't know he was married. Ah, how they all grow up, says Tommy, teasing. Justin's 30, he adds. She's possibly older. Jay says, definitely older. Well, she's an interesting looking girl, says Joyce. What's she like? Mm, she's a writer. She's okay. Jay, bending over the sink, makes a noise that Joyce cannot interpret. Eh, inclined to be aloof, Tommy says. He speaks to Jay. Am I right? Would you say that? She thinks she's hot, Jay says, distinctly. Well, she's just got her first book published, Tommy says. I forget what it's called. Some title like a how-to book. I don't think it's a good title. You get your first book out, though, I guess you are hot for a while. Passing a bookstore on Lonsdale a few days later, Joyce sees the girl's face on a poster 
and there is her name, Christy O'Dell. She's wearing a black hat and the same little black jacket she wore to the party, tailored, severe, very low in the neck, though she has practically nothing there to show off. She stares straight into the camera with her somber, wounded, distantly accusing look. Where has Joyce seen her before? At the party, of course, but even then, in the midst of her probably unwarranted dislike, she felt she had seen that face before. A student? She'd had so many students in her time. She goes into the store and buys a copy of the book. How are we to live? No question mark. The woman who sold it to her says, And you know, if you bring it back Friday afternoon between two and four, the author will be here to sign it for you. Just don't tear the little gold stick sticker off so it shows you bought it here. Joyce had never understood this business of lining up to get a glimpse of the author and then going away with a stranger's name written in your book. So she murmurs politely, indicating neither yes nor no. She doesn't even know if she will read the book. She has a couple of good biographies on the go at the moment that she is sure are more to her taste than this will be. How Are We to Live <laughs> is a collection of short stories, not a novel. Oh, this in itself is a disappointment. It seems to diminish the book's authority, making the author seem like somebody who is just hanging on to the gates of literature rather than safely settled inside. Nevertheless, Joyce takes the book to bed with her that night and turns dutifully to the table of contents. About halfway down the list, a title catches her eye. Kinder Totenlieder. Ah, Mahler. Familiar territory. Reassured, she turns to the page indicated. Somebody Probably the author herself has had the sense to supply a translation. Songs on the Death of Children. Beside her, Matt gives a snort. She knows that he has disagreed with something he is reading and would like her to ask what it is. So, she does. Oh, Christ, this idiot. She puts how are we to live face down on her chest, making sounds to show that she is listening to him? On the back cover of the book, there is the same author's photo, without the hat this time, unsmiling still and sulky, but a bit less pretentious. While Matt talks, Joyce shifts her knees so that she can position the book against them and read the few sentences of the cover biography. Hmm. Christy O'Dell grew up in Rough River, hmm. a small town on the coast of 
British Columbia. She is a graduate of the UBC Creative Writing Program. She lives in Vancouver, British Columbia with her husband, Justin, and her cat, Tiberius. When he has explained to her what the idiocy in his book is all about, Matt lifts his eyes from his book to look at her book and says, Oh, there's that girl that was at our party. Yes, her name's Christy O'Dell. She's Justin's wife. Mm, she's written a book then. Well, what is it? Fiction. Oh. He has resumed his reading. But in a moment, asks her with a hint of contrition. Is it any good? I don't know yet. She lives with her mother, she reads, in a house between the mountains and the sea. As soon as she has read those words, Joyce feels too uncomfortable to continue reading or to continue reading with her husband beside her. She closes the book and says, I think I'll go downstairs for a little. Oh, well, is the light bothering you? I, I'm about to turn it off. No, I think I want some tea. I'll see you in a while. I'll probably be asleep. Oh, well, good night then. Good night. She kisses him and takes the book with her. She lived with her mother in a house between the mountains and the sea. Before that, she had lived with Mrs. Noland, who took in foster children. The number of children in Mrs. Noland's house varied from time to time, but there were always too many. The little ones slept in a bed in the middle of the room, and the bigger ones slept in cots on either side of the bed so the little ones wouldn't roll off. A bell rang to get you up in the morning. Mrs. Dolan stood in the doorway, ringing the bell. When she rang the next bell, you were supposed to have been to pee and got yourself washed and dressed and be ready for breakfast. Big ones were supposed to help the little ones and then make the beds. Sometimes the little ones in the middle had wet the bed because it was hard for them to crawl out in time over the big ones. And some big ones would tell on them, but other big ones were nicer, and they just pulled up the covers and let it dry. And sometimes, when you got back in bed at night, it was not quite dried. That was the most of what she remembered about Mrs. Nolan's. Then, she went to live with her mother, and every night, her mother would take her to the AA meeting. Well, she had to take her. There wasn't anybody to leave her with. At the AA, there was a box of Legos for kids to play with, but, well, she didn't like Legos very much. After she started learning the violin at school, she took her child's violin with her to AA. Well, she couldn't play it there, but she had to hang on to it all the time because it belonged to the school. If people got talking very loudly, she could practice a little softly. The violin lessons were given at the school. If you didn't want to play an instrument, you could just play the triangles, but the teacher liked it better if you played something harder. The teacher 
was a tall woman with brown hair that she wore usually in a long braid down her back. She smelled different from the other teachers. Some of them had perfume on, but she never did. She smelled of wood or a stove or trees. Later, the child would believe the smell was crushed cedar. After the child's mother went to work for the teacher's husband, she smelled the same way, but not quite the same. The difference seemed to be that her mother smelled of wood, but the teacher smelled of wood in music. The child was not very talented, but she worked hard. She didn't do that because she loved music. She did it for the love of the teacher, nothing else. Joyce puts the book down on the kitchen table and looks again at the picture of the author. Is there anything of Edie in that face? Nothing. Nothing in the shape or the expression. She gets up and fetches the brandy. Mm. Puts a little of it in her tea. She searches her mind for the name of Edie's child. Surely not Christy. She could not remember any time when Edie had brought her to the house. At the school, there had been several children learning the violin. The child could not have been entirely without ability, or Joyce would have steered her to something less difficult than the violin. But she couldn't have been gifted. Well, she had said as much that she wasn't gifted. Or her name would have stuck. A blank face. A blob of female childishness. Though... There had been something that Joyce recognized in the face of the girl, the woman, grown up. Could she not have come to the house if Edie was helping John on a Saturday? Or even on those days when Edie just turned up as some sort of visitor, not to work, but just to see how work was coming along, and um, lend a hand if needed, plunk herself down to watch what ever John was doing and get in the way of any conversation he might have with Joyce on her precious day off. Christine, of course, that was it. It translated easily into Christy. Oh, Christine must have been privy in some way to the courtship. John must have dropped in at the apartment just as Edie had dropped in at the house. Edie might have sounded the child out. How do you like John? How do you like John's house? Wouldn't it be nice to go and live in John's house? Mommy and John like each other very much, and when people like each other very much, they want to live in the same house. Your music teacher and John don't like each other as much as Mommy and John do. So you and Mommy and John are going to live in John's house. And your music teacher is going to go live in an apartment. Oh, well, 
that was all wrong. Edie would never spout such blather. Give her credit. Joyce thinks she knows the turn the story will take. The child, all mixed up in the adult's dealings and delusions, pulled about hither and yon. But when she picks up the book again, she finds the switch of dwelling places hardly mentioned. Everything, everything is hinged on the child's love for the teacher. Thursday, the day of the music lesson, is the momentous day of the week. It's happiness or unhappiness, depending on the success or failure of the child's performance and the teacher's notice of that performance. Both are nearly unbearable. The teacher's voice could be controlled, kind, making jokes to cover its weariness and disappointment. The child is wretched. Or the teacher is suddenly light-hearted and merry. Good for you! Good for you! Oh, you've really made the grade today. And the child is so happy, she has cramps in her stomach. Then there is the Thursday when the child has tripped on the playground and has a scratched knee. The teacher, cleaning the injury with a warmed, wet cloth, her suddenly soft voice claiming that this calls for a treat as she reaches for the bowl of Smarties she uses to encourage the youngest children. Which is your favorite? The child overcome, says, Any, is this the beginning of a change? Is it because of spring, the preparations for the recital? The child feels herself singled out. She is to be the soloist. This means she must stay after school on Thursdays to practice. And so, she misses her ride out of town on the school bus to the house where she and her mother are now living. The teacher will drive her. On the way, she asks if the child is nervous about the recital. Well, sort of. Well then, the teacher says, she must train herself to think of something really nice, such as a bird flying across the sky. What is her favorite bird? Oh, favorites again. The child can't think. She can't think of a single bird. And then a, cr a crow? The teacher laughs. <laughs> okay, okay, think of a crow. Just before you begin to play, you think of a crow. And then perhaps to make up for laughing, Sensing the child's humiliation, 
the teacher suggests they go down to Willingdon Park and see if the ice cream stand has opened for the summer. Oh, do they worry if you don't come straight home? Well, they know I'm with you. The ice cream stand is open, though the selection is limited. They haven't got the more exciting flavors in yet. The child picks strawberry, this time making sure to be ready in the middle of her bliss and agitation. The teacher picks vanilla, as many adults do, though she jokes with the attendant, telling him to hurry up and get rum raisin, or she won't like him anymore. Maybe that is when there is another change. Hearing the teacher speak in that way in a saucy voice, almost the way big girls speak, the child relaxes. From then on, she is less stricken with adoration, though entirely happy. They drive down to the dock to look at the moored boats, and the teacher says she has always wanted to live in a houseboat. Oh, wouldn't it be fun, she says, and the child, of course, agrees. They pick the one they'd choose. It is a homemade one and painted a light blue with a row of little windows in which there are potted geraniums. This leads to a conversation about the house that the child lives in now, the house where the teacher used to live. And somehow after that, on their drives, they often come back to that subject. The child reports that she likes having her own bedroom, but doesn't like how dark it is outside. Sometimes she thinks she can hear wild animals outside her window. Oh, what wild animals? Bears and cougars. Her mother says, those are in the bush and never to go out there. Oh, do you run and get into your mother's bed when you hear them? I'm not supposed to. Oh, goodness, why not? John's there. Well, what does John think about the bears and cougars? He thinks it's just deer. Was he mad at your mother for what she'd told you? I guess he's never mad. Uh, he was sort of mad one time when me and my mother poured all his wine down in the sink. Teacher says it is a pity to be scared of the woods all the time. There are walks you can take there, she says, where wild animals won't bother you, especially if you make a noise, and you usually do. She knows the safe paths, and she knows the names of all the wildflowers that will be coming out right about now. Dogtooth violets, trilliums, wake robins, purple violets and columbines, and chocolate lilies. I think there's another proper name for them, but I like to call them chocolate lilies. It sounds so delicious. Of course, it isn't anything about the way they taste, but the way they look. They look well, just like chocolate, with a bit of purple, like crushed berries. They're rare, but I know where there are some. Joyce puts the book down again. 
now. Now she really has caught the drift and she can feel the horror coming. The innocent child, the sick and sneaking adult, that seduction. Oh, she should have known. All so in fashion these days. <laughs> it's practically obligatory. The woods, the spring flowers. Here was where the writer would graft her ugly invention onto the people and the situation she had got out of real life, being too lazy to invent. Mm-hmm. But not to malign. For some of it, yeah, it was true, certainly. She does now remember things she'd forgotten. Driving Christine home and never thinking of her as Christine, but always as Edie's child. She remembers how she could not drive into the yard to turn around, but always let the child off by the side of the road and then drive another half mile or so to get a place to turn. She does not remember anything about the ice cream, but there used to be a houseboat exactly like that moored down at the dock. Even the flowers and the sly, horrible questioning of the child. Oh, that could be true. She has to continue. She would like to pour more brandy, but she has a rehearsal at nine o'clock in the morning. Nothing of the sort. She has made another mistake. The woods and the chocolate lilies, they drop right out of the story. And the recital is almost passed over. School has just ended. And on the Sunday morning after the final week, the child is wakened early. She hears the teacher's voice in the yard, and she goes to her window. Yes, there is the teacher in her car with the window down talking to John. A small U-Haul is attached to the car. John is in his bare feet, bare-chested, wearing only his jeans. He calls to the child's mother, and she comes to the kitchen door and walks a few steps into the yard, but does not go up to the car. She's wearing a shirt of John's, which she uses as a dressing gown. She always wears long sleeves to hide her tattoos. Well, the conversation is about something in the apartment, which John promises to pick up. The teacher tosses him the keys. Then he and the child's mother talk over each other, urge her to take some other things, but the teacher laughs unpleasantly and says, <laughs> all yours. Soon, John says, okay, see you. And the teacher echoes, see you. And the child's mother doesn't say anything. You can hear. The teacher laughs in the same way she did before, and John gives her directions about how to turn the car and the U-Haul around in the yard. 
Well, by this time, the child is running downstairs in her pajamas, though she knows the teacher is not in the right mood to talk to her. Mm, you just missed her, the child's mother says. She had to catch the fairy. There is a honk of the horn. John raises one hand, and then he comes across the yard and says to the child's mother, That's that. The child asks if the teacher is going to come back, and he says, not likely. What takes up another half page is the child's increasing understanding of what has been going on. As she grows older, she recalls certain questions. The seemingly haphazard probing there had been. Information, quite useless really, about John, whom she does not call John, and her mother, when did they get up in the morning? What did they like to eat? And did they cook together? What did they listen to on the radio? Nothing. They had bought a television. What was the teacher after? Did she hope to hear bad things? Or was she just hungry to hear anything, to be in contact with somebody who slept under the same roof, ate at the same table, was close to those two people daily. That is what the child can never know. What she can know is how little she herself counted for, how her infatuation was manipulated, what a poor little fool she was, and this fills her with bitterness. Well, certainly it does. Bitterness and pride. She thinks of herself as a person never to be fooled again. But something happens, and here is the surprise ending. Her feelings about the teacher and that period in her childhood one day change. She doesn't know how or when, but she realizes that she no longer thinks of that time as a cheat. She thinks of the music she painfully learned to play. She gave it up, of course, before she was even in her teens. The buoyancy of her hopes, the streaks of happiness the curious and delightful names of the forest flowers that she never got to see. Love. She was glad of it. It almost seemed as if there must be some random, and of course unfair, thrift in the emotional housekeeping of the world. If the great happiness great happiness. However temporary, 
however flimsy, of one person could come out of the great unhappiness of another. Why, yes, Joyce thinks. Yes. On Friday afternoon, she goes to the bookstore. She brings her book to be signed, <laughs> as well as a small box from Le Bon Chocolatier. She joins a lineup. She is slightly surprised to see how many people have come. Women of her own age, women older and younger, a few men who are all younger, some accompanying their girlfriends. The woman who sold Joyce the book recognizes her. Oh, it's good to see you back, she says. Did you read the review in the Globe? Wow! Joyce is bewildered, actually trembling a little. She finds it hard to speak. The woman passes along the lineup, explaining that only books bought in this store can be autographed here, and that a certain anthology in which one of Christy O'Dell's stories appears is not acceptable, and she is sorry. The woman in front of Joyce is both tall and broad, so she does not get a look at Christy O'Dell until this woman bends forward to place her book on the autographing table. And then she sees a young woman altogether different from the girl on the poster and the girl at the party. The black outfit is gone. Also that black hat. Christy O'Dell wears a jacket of rosy red silk brocade with tiny gold beads sewn to its lapels. A delicate pink camisole is worn underneath. There is a fresh gold rinse in her hair, gold rings in her ears, and a gold chain fine as hair around her neck. Her lips glisten like flower petals, and her eyelids are shaded with umber. Well, who wants to buy a book written by a grouch or a loser? <laughs> now, Joyce has not thought out what she will say. She expects it to uh, come to her. Now the saleswoman is speaking again. Have you opened your book to the page where you wish it to be signed? Joyce has to set her box down to do that. She can actually feel a flutter in her throat. Christy O'Dell looks up at her, smiles at her, a smile of polished cordiality, professional disengagement. Your name? Oh, um, just Joyce will be fine. Ooh, her time is passing so quickly. Um, you were born in Rough River? No says Christy O'Dell with some slight displeasure, or at least some diminishing of cheer. I did live there for a time. Shall I put the date? Joyce retrieves her box. At Le Bon Chocolatier, they did sell chocolate flowers, but not lilies, only roses and tulips. So she had bought tulips, which were not actually unlike lilies, both bulbs. 
I want to thank you for Kinder Toten Leader, she says so hastily that she almost swallows the long word. Well, it, it means a great deal to me. So I, I brought you a present. Oh, isn't that a wonderful story? The saleswoman takes the box. I'll just hang on to this. Well, it isn't a bomb, says Joyce with a laugh. It's chocolate lilies. Actually, tulips. They didn't have lilies, so I got tulips. I thought they were the next best thing. She notices that the saleswoman is not smiling now, but taking a hard look at her. Christy O'Dell says, thank you. There is not a scrap of recognition in that girl's face. She doesn't know Joyce from years ago in Rough River or two weeks ago at the party. You couldn't even be sure that she had recognized the title of her own story. You would think she had nothing to do with it, as if it was just something she wriggled out of and left on the grass. Christy O'Dell sits there and writes her name as if that is all the writing she could be responsible for in this world. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, says the saleswoman, still looking at the box, which the girl at Le Bon Chocolatier has fixed with a beautiful curly yellow ribbon. Christy O'Dell has raised her eyes to greet the next person in line. And Joyce, at last, has the sense to move on before she becomes an object of general amusement. Oh, and her box, God knows, possibly an object of interest to the police. <laughs> Walking up Lonsdale Avenue, walking uphill. She feels flattened, but gradually regains her composure. <laughs> this might even turn into a funny story that she would tell someday. She wouldn't be surprised. Good night.